0: The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them because ultimately the only definition that matters is our own. Named one of the most creative people in business in 2020 by Fast Company, today's guest, Amanda Decadene, is an entrepreneur, journalist, photographer, and advocate. She has had a lifelong career in the media, starting at age 15 in the UK, where she became one of only two women who hosted their own TV show. For more than 25 years, Amanda has used her platform in the spotlight to advocate for female representation. Her own experience with gender bias inspired her to executive produce and host The Conversation, a groundbreaking interview series and podcast featuring female thought leaders and innovators, including Vice President Kamala Harris. Me Too founder Tarana Burke, Gwyneth Paltrow, Alicia Keys, and Lady Gaga, amongst others. Amanda is also the founder of Girl Gaze, a platform that connects a network of female identifying and non-binary creatives with companies who want to hire more diverse creative teams. In her spare time, Amanda also has written two books. One is called It's Messy on Boys, Boobs, and Badass Women, which I loved, as well as a beautiful photography book called Girl Gaze, how Girls See the World, and Rare Birds. I'm so excited to talk to her today and understand more of how she sees the world, and I hope you enjoy. Amanda, it is good to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Where am I finding you? Uh, well, hi, Sarah.
1: It's good to be with hi. you, too. Uh, I am in actually in my garage, which uh I turned into my safe space during lockdown because I needed to have a space away from my kids and my husband.
0: I find every every room of every house has to occupy both like so many different physical and emotional needs right now, right? 100%. I think it's very important for
1: families or it, people who are living together to have a space that they can just be by themselves and do whatever it is they need to do.
0: Right. How have you found the whole experience? Because you have teenagers, right? Or preteens? Yeah,
1: I do. I have. They just turned, they, they turned 14 uh, in lockdown. So they've gone from being kind of kids to mm-hmm. uh, teens. And it's, it's intense. It is definitely intense having teens who were at home 24-7 when they should be individuating and they're like stuck with their parents even more. Is, it's definitely been a challenge.
0: I think that there's something so interesting about this. Like I read recently that one of the biggest challenges of parenthood is really to sort of help to guide these young individuals to find their identity without losing your own in the process and Mm. I just know from my own journey obviously we're all still evolving and discovering who we are and then this last year being locked in with ourselves has made it even more intense and then to be on the precipice of really like such a transitional period for kids lives like I remember how intense that time was so to be locked in with your parents has got to make it kind of crazy for everybody.
1: Yeah I think what you said about not losing yourself in the process is the really hard part because not only are your kids in a new phase of life, but you as a parent need to go into a different type of parenting that is very different than what you're used to because when your kids are little and, you know, up until the age of 11, 12, 13 even, they need you for everything, you know, to feed them and to get them around and to buy them clothes and They're very reliant on on their parents for pretty much everything, especially kids in LA who don't go on the subway and what have you. And so when they hit this next phase, they actually don't want you for the same amount of, of stuff and they don't have to listen to you and they don't have to do what you say. And so it has to be a choice. They have to choose to take your guidance. And it's a very different position to be in as a parent because you almost have to earn that right. And that is a whole different approach. So uh, I'm finding it a very hard transition as well. I know they are, but I really am too. Hence the garage. Hence the garage, yes. <laughs>
0: and um, mm-hmm, a few other things, but yes, definitely the garage. Wait, uh, I was doing a little research and I read, and I don't know if this is true, but around the same age in your life, did you move out of your own home when you were about 14. Yes. Yeah, so
1: when I was 14 years old, I was put into juvie. And um, and of course, so that was a very traumatic experience. And I have obviously got a lot of trauma around the age 14. Um, and so my own kids, when they kind of hit that age, I, I guess I keep saying to myself, hey, at least they're not in juvie. They're not in juvie yet.
0: Right. Not in juvie What did you go yet. to juvie for? Because when However, it was in the article that I read, it was referred to as something else, which is maybe the collo- colloquialism in the Like a, like know, a the children's UK. home.
1: A children's
0: home. Okay. Maybe it said a children's home. And I sort of assumed, I thought, oh, maybe that was foster care. Or, I didn't really know what that meant. So Juvie suggests, like, did you get into trouble for something? The truth is, is
1: that I had moved out of home. And you cannot move out of home at age 14 because you're not you know legal Uh, you cannot be living by yourself and Mm -hmm. so um my parents had been very concerned about about me because i had moved out of home and it turned out that they had actually reported me as a missing person even though they knew where i was and Mm -hmm. so when they worked out where i was they basically called the police on me and i ended up in juvie
0: Wow. So I'm sure, like you said, you have a lot of trauma around the age of 14, but it must be such a full circle moment seeing your kids and still like even however mature they think that they are understanding sort of still how, how young they are. And I wonder if it gives you a lot more empathy for yourself at that age too, having gone through that. It
1: does, but it also just has really highlighted that 14 is a very difficult transitional time. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to not take 14 year old kids personally because they can definitely be real dicks. And, you know, it's it's kind of, you're like, okay, well, at what point, you know, I would never let anyone else speak to me like this or treat me like this, like never. If, if mm-hmm. anyone else spoke to me the way my kids spoke to me, it would just be like, this is a toxic relationship. I do not want you in my life. Um, so it's very interesting being a parent because, you know, I guess the line that I keep speaking to various people about is like, at what point do you draw the line? You're like, yeah, I know you're my kid, but this doesn't work for me. How you speak right. to me does not work for me. And I love you, but until you can speak to me, you know, without that level of a hostility or aggression or judgment, I'm just not willing to talk to you. You cannot do that with your child. So because then they feel rejected and you're supposed to be the parent that can hold the space for all of their shitty feelings. You, you have to be able to do that because if you don't, then they grow up with not being able to safely express all the, the dark sides of them, which most of us, you know, did not have that experience of being able to express those feelings. So that's part. Apparently, this is part of my role as a parent is to create a safe container for my kids to express all of their negative emotions and to know that that's OK to express them in an appropriate way and that they are still lovable
0: Right, and do so without it taking it personally. Which is I mean, it's very, very hard to do. I would I would say almost impossible. Yeah.
1: I mean it it's not really possible for me, I have to say, because I'm I'm very sensitive and I feel things on a very deep level, which is a beautiful quality to have, but it's also can be painful. And so mm-hmm you know, navigating as a parent, how much of that container can you be is, you know, it's a work in progress. Some days I can be more of a container than others. Other days I'm like, I just need someone to be a container for my bad feelings.
0: You know, Um, that's what we have to find that person. Of course. Uh, Unfortunately, you have to pay that person, you know, you don't get to live with them and just berate them ad nauseum for free. No. No, they they will leave if you do that. Yeah, it's really frowned upon. <laughs> how has your how has your headspace been like throughout the last year and then now cuz you, you're in Los Angeles, right? I am. Yeah. I find that we're in this like this weird sort of in-between limbo state, which is almost, I find, a little bit more hard to navigate than when it was very clear what we were meant to be doing and you were just adhering to protocol, which was stay home and everything that came with it. Like, yes, of course, that was tough, but you you felt a safety, I think, in the rigidity of understanding what to do. Like, do you feel comfortable? Are you out and about? Are you engaging? Do you feel like any sort of residual weird social kind of issues definitely I mean you're talking about having a very clear
1: structure which I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people do well with in life knowing what the boundaries are what you can do you can't do I definitely feel like I've gone out for dinner the last couple of nights and it's the first time I've been out for dinner since I don't know and I definitely am not feeling great around lots of people Mm -hmm. And I also have found myself saying like really stupid things, you know, that like I grew up on live TV. I'm pretty good with being in control of what I'm saying and knowing what I'm saying. (laughs) Generally speaking, I have quite a kind of command over what comes out of my mouth. But I have found that I'm having some like social awkwardness. And I was trying to work out because I did have dinner the other night with a friend and her new boyfriend. And I said to my husband afterwards, I was like, was he just really socially awkward? Or am I socially awkward? Like, what's going on here? Because it felt really awkward. And we were trying to work out. And it didn't What did really he matter. think?
0: Did, it, didn't, did it, didn't really it, it didn't really matter who
1: it didn't really matter what the end result was. But I know that I was definitely feeling awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting to observe.
0: Yeah, I think we're out of practice. And so the more hunkered down that we've been and the more insular your group has been, you just, yeah, I think you're out of practice. All right, so tell me something fun. What was the last lie that you told? Uh, that
1: I did not look in someone's phone. Oh, okay. Do you do that a lot? No, I do not do that a lot. This was a complete accident because we were swiping phones to um mm-hmm. trade them in. Mm -hmm. And when you wipe the phone in the Apple store, they ask people, you know, like, what's the Apple cloud number or password? And when you give that, all the stuff starts piling in. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: you're like, oh, my God, what's this? And I I did look at some photos that popped up. And it wasn't my husband, it was one of my kids. But that Mm -hmm. is, I definitely was not forthcoming about that.
0: Right. I, I feel like that's probably okay. On what occasion do you think it's okay to lie? Well, I don't
1: like to lie. On principle, I... I'm a very honest person and I will generally find a way to say something that does, would not be considered lying. When somebody has told you something and said, I am trusting you with this information, please do not share it. It is crucial. Nobody else knows about this. And then you're holding that information and somebody else says, uh, Hey, do you think Do you think so-and-so is pregnant? Do you think so-and-so is sick? Or whatever the thing is, and you know Mm -hmm. what the answer is. I don't lie, but what I say is, you would have to talk to them about that. Right. Which some people
0: might say is an admission at that point,
1: yes. But I I always say that. If you're going to ask me about someone else, Mm -hmm. on principle, I'm not going to talk to you about that. If it's something that is sensitive, I'm going to say, you know what, Sarah, I
0: think you should speak to them about that. Well, now I know who to go to with my secrets.
1: Yes, I'm a very I'm not good. Not just going to reveal either. them at the
0: parties in the neighborhood anymore. I'm going to come not. straight to the source. Please, yes. Okay. okay, so you know we all are aware of all of the things that we have lost over the last year and a half. But what do you feel you have gained from this experience?
1: Um, I think I have gained t- uh, a lot of time that I needed to stop, mm-hmm. and that was invaluable because I never would have elected to stop quite the way that I had. I've been working since I'm 15 years old and it's just kind of part of my routine and part of what I do. And it was really incredible to be able to be still and to do all the weird little things. Well, some of them were more substantial, but the things that I just hadn't done for years and years and years, that was really good for me just to kind of be and not have my brain always in like, oh, I have to do this or I have to do that phone call or I have to go do that job or... Just to kind of be still that that gave me a lot of insight and grounding that I needed
0: mm-hmm. okay, so you know, I want to talk to you about the notion that we are sold, I think primarily as women, about the concept of having it all. Is that something that you believe in, and if so, what did you think it would look like? I mean, I've
1: been working since I was fifteen. And then I had a child at 19, I was married at 18. And I have been married with the same partner for the last 20 years. I've been a mother since I was 19. And so majority of my life I've been working and being a mother and being in a relationship. And so I know firsthand that this phrase, having it all is just complete bullshit. And it has always really bothered me that it was even something that was considered as a truth because it is setting women up to feel like failures and to compare themselves to others and to ultimately feel like we're not doing enough when in fact most of us are doing way enough and then some we need to do less. So it is one of the grossest lies if you ask me and I've always been very vocal about how lacking in truth it is, because what does that mean, have it all? Your have it all might look different to mine, might look different, everyone's looks different, right? So I know that if I want to parent with the level of consciousness that I want to parent with, that I do parent with, that takes a lot of time. And not just with my kids, but with myself to keep learning and growing and challenging myself to, to grow as my kids grow. Same with my marriage. I'm not married for 20 years. I didn't wake up 20 years later. This has been an immense amount of work and continues to be. And to have a career for as long as I've had a career, and I'm very grateful that I get to keep having a career, that takes work too. And so there's only 24 hours in the day. And nobody has more time. That's the one thing we all get, the same amount of time. It's just I know that there is always something that is suffering out of that kind of trifecta, and whatever is in crisis or whatever is like on the front burner, the other things are on the back burner. You have to just keep moving stuff around. Okay, now I need to give time for my relationship. Wow, my kids are getting really stretched thin. I just haven't given them enough time. I can feel it because that one's acting out. That one's mad. da da. da. I gotta I gotta cut back on the work because. I'm just drained. You know, when you are trying to be the ultimate and in each one of those at the same time, it it just, it cannot last for long. (laughs) At least that's my experience. By the way, there may be someone listening to this that's like, I don't know what she's talking about. You know, I think I have it all and it works fine for me. And that's great. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. for me,
0: this is my feeling on it. And this is my experience with it. Right. Well, of course, like you said, I I think it's, it looks different to each of us. And I think that we each have different barometers for what sort of quote unquote success we want to have in each of these sort of parameters of our life and what constitutes that for us. And also, you know, I think the challenge for a lot of people too, is that putting your all or the entirety of your efforts into any one of those pots, as you say, really leaves a lot of us feeling unfulfilled in the other areas. And so I think it's the effort to try to keep everything sort of on a simmer, but at the same time understanding that there's going to be those times where each of them really need the full intensity of your efforts and your commitment and your intention. And that's going to switch.
1: Yeah, that is true. And I feel the same way. But what I also, you know, think that we start teaching our girls young that unless they are working and having families and holding and having successful relationships, unless they are doing all of those things, they are not successful. So the message that is given is not, hey, listen, if you don't want to have kids, it's like when women choose to not have kids, it's discussed Like, oh my gosh, so-and-so doesn't want kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, what's, what's wrong somewhere? with her? So mm-hmm. it, and it should not be that, right? Right. Because we're culturally we are raised there is focus on the fact that you are not fulfilling your role as a woman on the planet if you're choosing to not have kids i mean i have immense respect for people who are like yeah i don't want to do that actually i just want to uh work and get laid okay great you know by the way after my night last night that sounds like a better option you know (laughs) For many of us, by the way, yeah, you know, um, so I, I think, again, the message, you know, and, and also women who just choose to be mothers, you know, which, as we know, is one of the most emotionally intensive, labor intensive, unpaid jobs that we have. But, oh, but v- very little respect. Very little. And mm-hmm. women who just want, who want to be, see, I said, who just want to be, see, even that came right, out just, of my mouth. Right. And it's not. And I know differently, but even in my communication, that could be construed as me looking down on somebody who is just wanting to be a parent. Right. What what does she do? She's just a mom. Maybe they're women who are choosing to do one thing instead of all of the stuff. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're actually more sane than many of us.
0: I would argue yes. Well, you know, I think it's all about designing the sort of life that you want for yourself, right? So you talked about... The fact that not only did you move out at 14, but that you started working at 15 and you were one of two women who had her own talk show at that point, right? Mm -hmm. In the UK. So number one, I want to know a little bit about where you grew up and what you envisioned for the type of life you wanted to design. And then also where the confidence and the assuredness at such a young age came from to be able to do that. So I never had an
1: idea of what kind of life I wanted I knew that I needed to be financially secure in order to have anything that wasn't reliant on other people. And I did not want to be reliant on other people. I did Mm -hmm. not want to have um, to ask whatever boyfriend I had like, oh, hey, I really like this piece of jewelry or, you know, I want to buy these shoes. like, yeah, I'm not doing that. If I want the thing, I'm going to have my money and I'm going to buy it. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be going to anybody for like rent or what food, or
0: Where did that come from, though? Was that a response to something you saw? Yeah, or was course, that something that course. you knew?
1: Nobody has that response at age 15, unless it's some kind of like trauma response. Right. So it was like a divorce or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Mm -hmm. my mom. It was my mom. My parents getting divorced. I'm seeing how my mom didn't have a skill set to be able to financially support her family. And I was like, yeah, I'm never going to have that happen to me. Mm -hmm. And so I started working very young and that was very important to me to have to be financially secure and independent, financially independent. So, and why was I confident? I was confident because I wouldn't have said I was confident. It was definitely fake confidence. It was kind of fake it till you make it. But I genuinely was very curious about people in the same way that I am now. And I'm really interested in what makes people tick. I'm very curious about how people got to be, you know, who they are in the world and what their road and their journey has been. And I also grew up around a lot of musicians. And so as a kid, I was around people like the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd and all these kind of amazing British bands that my dad was friends with. And so for me, it wasn't unusual to have you know, musicians and successful musicians in my kitchen growing up. And so it was a very natural progression for me to interview musicians, which was my first interview job I had on TV. Uh, It was a live late night show called The Word. So that kind of comfort level combined with my curiosity about people, you know, I was able to do that job. And I learned as I did it. But having like my first job was hosting live late night TV. That was my first job ever.
0: And you were actually 15 or how old were you at that point? I was 15. Is that
1: legal? I mean, I don't think it is, actually, but I Mm -hmm. think... um, Because it wasn't undercover. You were on live television. I was on live television. television. (laughs) I mean, I I guess that was at a time where you could still, like, run a red light and not have a camera take a photo of you. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, the law was not as hardcore as it Mm -hmm. is now. But I'm sure there was some kind of permit that I had to have. I don't really remember, but it was my first job, and I you know, I just learned to kind of navigate my fear and learn to navigate kind of feeling publicly, you know, humiliated for like saying or doing something wrong on live TV. I think it's also why I'm quite, I find um, it's very hard for me to feel embarrassed because I grew up on live TV with no delay. So if you would say something or would forget something or whatever it was, you'd trip, it doesn't matter. People would see it. And so I don't have kind of embarrassment about pretty much anything at this point.
0: Right. Well, and by the way, and that makes much more sense at this stage of your life with the sort of maturity that you've earned with time and age. But at 15, like you said earlier about your own kids, you're physically developing too. Mm -hmm. So that must have been a weird thing, right? You're kind of like on the precipice of like you're teenager, you're not legal to work, you're certainly not legal to date, but I imagine you're in the spotlight as this young woman, was that a weird sort of coming of age? I mean, it was the only thing I knew. So
1: I think it's very damaging being a young person who is trying to form your identity and doesn't even know that that's what you're trying to do, but you're doing it publicly. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very dangerous position to be in. I have the most immense amount of empathy for people who have to grow up in the public eye in that capacity, because you just cannot get out of it without a lot of damage. You just cannot. Right. You know, the combination of fame and being a teenager is it's not a good combo.
0: Was that something that you got quite famous for at that stage of your life? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I by the time I was sort of 18, I was like a household name there. And I wow, could not go anywhere without, you know, I don't know, like, like, Britney Spears or somebody you know what I mean it was like and I'm a girl on TV but there was no not really famous people at, in England that were want England's like a weird fishbowl they have like their famous people of which I was one of the first young I was probably the first young person who was famous there mm-hmm. and because of that there was a lot of attention on me and I posted the biggest live late night talk show. So it was kind of crazy. It's like even today when I if I happen to meet someone or come across someone like grew up in the UK, they're like, oh, my God, I used to watch you on TV. And it's just another it's another life. But it's one that gave me just amazing insight and access into a world that I was very comfortable in. And it, it gave me the opportunity to learn kind of on the job You know what I mean? Like I learned as I went and I don't know that you could get that opportunity now. Everything is so kind of like by the book, you know, whereas at that point it was like this girl has never done this before, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. She seems like she could do it. Let's give her a shot. And I love that. I love that. You know, we don't have those kind of opportunities anymore.
0: No, but not only that, I mean, like we're still waiting to have a female late-night talk show host at this stage in 2021. You know, I know we've had- Yeah, it's dire. It's 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 not, you know, and it sounds like you were doing this at 15, so.
1: Yeah, but by the way, even in America, I mean, the fact that, you know, my interview series, The Conversation, which was on TV eight years ago, which was all women and talking to women about their life experiences that were pretty profound experiences, the fact that even at that time, that was a groundbreaking show because no one was getting, no women had their own show outside of daytime, which is a mm-hmm. very different type of content. It's very safe. Late night, there was, my show was on at night that because I, I wanted it on at night because I wanted to be able to talk about things that were, I guess, would be, you know, considered risky, right? Content that was challenging. Risky it was because it
0: was content also that really was about things that all women could relate to. Like I I was such a big fan of that show. I am such a big fan of that show. Thank you. You know, number one, you said it was eight years ago, but that was like you were bringing together such enormous talent as far as women, but also that they were able to talk about things. Think about it. If you're on like Jimmy Kimmel, no disrespect to Jimmy Kimmel, because I think he's great. It's like you're doing, you know, a pre-show interview with a producer. You're doing some sort of little funny bit. You were talking to people about where, you know, their insecurities came from, eating disorders, financial issues, sexual identity, such deeper digging questions than are on any of these shows. I mean, maybe something, you know, along the lines of Oprah talks about some of those things, but not just for women with women. Yeah,
1: thank you. I mean, it still kind of bothers me that there just isn't a space for women. You have to carve your own space and create your own space, which I did with The Conversation. When I Mm -hmm. came up with the idea for that show, it was because I had my twins and I had severe postpartum And I was trying to find stories about other women who had postpartum. And, you know, I just couldn't find any. There was nothing that was public. A few years later, Brooke Shields came out and said that she had postpartum. It was like a big deal, right? Right. More people now have talked about it. But I was like, wow, this is really fucked up that there's no... Women just aren't talking about this shit. But I know that there's other women who are dealing with this. And it kind of gave me the idea for the conversation because I realized, well, I can interview people. These are subject matters that I'm really interested in. I know I, I have other friends who have dealt with this stuff. I'm just going to interview mm-hmm. friends in my living room about this stuff. And I'm going to put it online so that other women can find it and feel less alone. And so I started to shoot that show using my own cameras because I'm a photographer. I know how to operate cameras. I know how to do sound and I would literally like start the camera and then jump into the frame and sit and do the interview. The sound was not great on the first ones because. You know what? Was- get you
0: a woman that can do both. I mean, at least you weren't using Riverside. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: my point is, is that, you know, there was no place for that show to go other than online until mm-hmm. a friend of mine said, you know, I think this could go on TV. You'd reach more people on TV because if your goal is for people to be able to find this, it should be on TV. And it was really sad looking around going, well, where could this show live? And ultimately it was very disheartening for me to realize that if I wanted to have a space on television in America, I would have to carve that path and create that space myself. Mm -hmm. Which by the way, on top of already making the show from your living room and then- And shooting it. Shooting it, researching Mm -hmm. it, interviewing. Mm -hmm. Then having to, every time we have to create a space that does not exist, The amount of labor involved in that is immense on top of already trying to create the thing. And that's the bummer in 2021 that I that I still see that there is so little space created for women to tell their stories. And even if I was making that show today as a series, I'm doing it as a podcast because I don't have to rely on carving a space. But even if I was going to make that as a series, where is it going to go?
0: Well, okay, but I mean, here's I was going to ask you because on one hand, that show was so ahead of the curve, right? Like we're having a lot more of these conversations and the narrative is slightly different today. And I think that there there are more conversations about this. But what was the response to the show? I mean, it was only it was only
1: incredible, to be honest, because it did end up on television and it was we sold it to 18 different networks around the world which just showed me that there was a need for this kind of content. The response from women who watched it would just make me weep. People would just come up to me all over the world and say, that interview with so-and-so, Jane Fonda or whoever it was, that changed my life. And that made me realize this. And I left my marriage or I started that job or I had a kid or I had an abortion or whatever it was. I just,
0: it was incredible yeah but and amanda, I mean you this these were not not to dismiss lesser known women, but these were all huge, bold names that you were interviewing from Gaga to Gwyneth, and you had such incredible talent on this show. Was there a thought to do more episodes? yeah, there was, um, and I
1: actually may do another series. I'm definitely mm-hmm. kind of in the process of talking to a couple of streamers um about doing that because i do think it's a really incredible platform and it is a really wonderful way to tell women's stories here's the other thing i think we're in a different time as you said there's a lot more places that are that are having these conversations now which is fantastic i wanted to create a space for these conversations and where and it was where I was at personally right it was what I was learning and what I was trying to manage in my own life and grow in my own life I feel like I'm in a different place now and I feel like what I would make today is slightly different in the sense of I feel like when I started making that show this information that level of personal intimate stories was not being shared and we needed women who had influence to share these, what they had overcome and the challenges in their lives. So that other women could feel like they had a path forward and that they could learn tools and or they could see a path to navigate the same thing that they were navigating in their lives. Now we're in a very different time. People live stream their births. It's a very different Mm -hmm. time. So I almost feel like we need to have a private space where people can learn and grow and say the wrong thing and ask stupid questions in order, because if we can't fuck up, we can't grow, but we can't really do that publicly anymore. So I feel like we need private spaces to be able to have conversations and to be able to express how we feel and to not know. And so I'm actually launching a, um, a conversation community, which is a private community that will be a lot of the content and the subject matter from the conversation, but it will be kind of, it'll be in a safe space. So I'm launching that because I think that's what's needed. That's a way I can support women in a safe space. And I also think that I want to start building bridges between men and women because mm-hmm. I have worked in this various spaces as an advocate for women for many years and I continue to be. But I also feel that as a woman who's married to a man and who I have a 14 year old son and I have many friends who are male, I want to help build bridges between genders because Right now, I feel like we're in Groundhog Day, where there's very separate gender camps and there isn't a space where all genders can speak. And how can we move forward while we're siloed? We need separate spaces, but we also have to create a welcoming space where we can listen to each other's perspectives and points of view and negotiate, I don't want to say terms, but Mm -hmm. negotiate in a way to be able to progress And there's some things that cannot be addressed without more genders in the room. And so I feel that that's an area I really want to focus on. And that is what I will be bringing in with the next kind of work that I am doing.
0: Right. Well, that sounds great. I mean, it's interesting because you said, you know, obviously with your upbringing and kind of being thrown into this late night realm you were really sort of became comfortable with doing things on the fly and also that almost impervious to judgment in that way because you just were able to roll with the punches. And even from, what was it, eight years ago that the show launched to today, our share culture is so different. Like you said, like people live stream their birth, but I wonder if even though everyone is being so open, if you feel like there's inherently so much more judgment now because it's not like, Dance as if no one is watching, everyone's eyes are on everyone. And, you know, when you get into the gender conversations, I think it's very tricky for people not to feel like they're going to be judged. And that's why I understand that in private, those conversations could be had in a way that hopefully will make progress. I want to talk about. Your work with girl gaze because I think you know obviously it's all part of the bigger puzzle of just not only advocating for women but really kind of renegotiating sort of the the gaze through which we're selling product we're hiring talent we are looking at ourselves so tell me about that you you're, you're a photographer and you did sort of like a call to action in what was that two thousand sixteen yes.
1: Girl kind of came to be when I had actually just interviewed Hillary Clinton for the conversation. She had announced that she was running for president and she had asked her team had asked me to interview her. You know, she was someone I always wanted to interview. So for me, that was a Mm -hmm. very big moment. And kind of after that interview, I was like, I don't know, like, what's next for me with this with this show, with the conversation? And I sort of realized that, you know, the conversation was reliant, is reliant on me to facilitate whatever it is, the interviews, you know, and I wanted to be able to, to find a way to actually utilize my privilege to, in a tangible way, empower as many other women and girls as possible. And so I came up with this idea for Girl Gaze, which initially was a call to action that I put on to Instagram for, you know, female identifying and non-binary creatives to share their work using hashtag girl gaze. And it was just, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people shared their work over the last, over the first, I think like one year even. And I started an Instagram account because people were always saying to me, not only did I have my own experiences as a photographer where the glass ceiling was so low, I could not get off my knees. um, And it was devastating to realize that but people would always come to me and say, I need a female photographer, or I'd like to hire a female director. And I just always know who those people are because I'm interested in them and and I'm interested in their work. And, And so Girl Gaze really just kind of blew up because of all of the work being submitted. It was like, oh my God, there's some phenomenal talent, which I knew, but then I started posting all their work. And then you know, magazine editors and CMOs of brands and people that I know would started following Girl Gaze. And at some point it got to the point where people were like, I want to hire this girl. I was like, just DM her, you know, hire her. Great. And then it got to the point where brands were coming to us and, you know, we want Girl Gaze to create this content and which was ultimately like me, you know, ideating it. But then instead of me creating it as a photographer or a director, it was finding girls from the Girl Gaze community, giving them the opportunity and helping putting a support team around them so that they could create the work. And so cut out the middleman, which is agents and agencies. Because if you're someone who's creative, but you don't have any access to get in front of Levi's, how are you going to do it? Well, if you're a girl gaze, you can do it because we get in front of people, right? And so it kind of turned into, you know, we, I ended up raising money, which I will never do again. Wow. I just want to say I will never ever as a female founder without a male co-founder, I will never raise money again. That was one of the most I have I have been humiliated in my life. I can tell you it was nothing like raising money.
0: Was this go- like you were going out to VCs? This yes. Friend's- OK. VCs. And it was just it was just that humiliating. It was a year of my life. Mm hmm
1: maybe longer on a daily basis other than Sundays, although I'm sure I was redesigning my deck for the five millionth time on a Sunday. And it was so disheartening the amount of people who, now we know that female founders get 2% of VC funding. We know that, right? 2%, but that 2% was not coming that, my way at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. And even though I had a company with, a, with, with revenue because I was a first time founder and I was female, I don't I can't even get into how demoralizing and how this it, this introduced me to a world of people who really I don't think think twice about how they speak to people about their ideas who because they hold the power which is the money the expectation of what you are supposed to do in order to maybe get that money is brutal and I have spoken to so many female founders. And by the way, I did raise money. I raised multi-millions of dollars in the end, but I will never do it again. And I am very, very grateful for the people who did invest in me and Girl Gaze because without them, we would not have been able to build the tech platform we have. We would not have been able to provide over 10,000 paid jobs for women and non-binary creatives that have built careers and changed people's lives in substantial financial ways and creative ways. So I'm extremely grateful for the people who did invest. But I have to tell you that it introduced me to a world of people that I I know that that is not a place for me.
0: Do you think, Amanda, it's because two things ring out to me right now is number one, because you said the glass ceiling was so low that I was on my knees, you know, which is really disheartening to hear number one because you're a person who has a platform who has access you're not coming from some podunk town with with no contacts like you're immersed within the community so if you feel that way I think that that's a really brutal state of affairs for other people who don't even have that's, the why, I that have, that's right. why I did it you have that's why I did
1: it because I thought if I am having this experience with mm-hmm. my talent with my access, wow, no wonder there's so few female creatives who are making it to the top here because there's no way they can get there. The barriers to entry are too many and they are too deep. And maybe I can be effective in utilizing the privilege I do have to help construct, imagine a new system. That is what I'm talking about with carving the path that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Create a new system, a new ecosystem that actually
0: circumnavigates the issues, right? And you have, obviously, with all the jobs that you've been able to offer this community of people, I wonder if you think it was because of sort of the amorphous nature of creativity to people who are really product-driven, like aside from the, the female element of it and the fact that obviously such a low percentage of funding goes to female founders anyways, but- in trying to communicate in a way that is qualifiable, right? Quantifiable, qualifiable, et cetera. Yeah, I know what people. you're saying. You're saying, could you they know? see
1: that there was dollars that they were gonna get their money out of Right. This? Because they, do they understand what this industry do is? They,
0: do they even understand it? I mean, that that had to make yeah. so much work for you too. Yeah, you, you.
1: that's another great point you're raising because I don't think there wasn't a model that I could point to. Mm-hmm. There are more models today, right? because remote hiring has taken off because everyone, it was remote.
0: There are a lot more people I would say in media and in culture that young women are seeing that you and I growing up did, you know, there was really like a, a body type. We live in West Hollywood. So they are impressionable in that we have a bombardment of imagery all the time, like just in the basics of, you know, seeing all of the um, the outdoor advertising. But look, I'm thinking of someone like Addison Rae, you know what I mean? Like whether you're into TikTok people is is not the kind of Kate Moss person or the body type that we were growing up no, with. No, no, but you know? she's
1: but she is she is girl next door pretty. Mm-hmm. Her mm-hmm. body fits, you know, the the kind of like, you know, generic uh mm-hmm. although it's not generic, right? So that's entertainment. Like this mm-hmm. is not a generic body although mm-hmm. we are saying oh she's not Kate Moss. Well, no, Kate was very her body type was a very, you know, different body type to that. But what is normal? I think what we're talking about is has normal expanded? Has our kids' concept of normal? Like what's an average normal? You know, what's average in the US is a size 16. Mm -hmm. But that's not what is put forward in popular media as desirable still. Mm -hmm. Now, and guess what? The truth remains is that when people look at, um, Addison Rae, let's just use Mm -hmm. that example versus Lizzo. I love Lizzo. I'm dying to interview her. I think she's phenomenal. The more people will praise Addison Rae and comment on her beauty and her body and her good looks and how gorgeous she is than they will to Lizzo. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now I know what my perspective is, but maybe I don't, I'm not thinking like, you know, the majority of people. So people are still more praising of Addison Rae's physique than they are of Lizzo's. That's the world we live in. Right, right. I understand why I don't feel that way, but I understand that that is still the culture we live in. Mm -hmm. And therefore, as parents and as someone who creates media, I know I have a lot of work to do. To keep introducing different concepts of beauty,
0: right it will it, yeah, and also, you know, just as you talk about as a parent raising a child and the bombardment of imagery and women and their bodies and everything and celebrating shapes and celebrating bodies am i am I the person to decide like as I try to shape a world understanding for my eight year old daughter? I don't know, if not me, then who you know I mean and by the way, like there is no
1: straight answer on this because. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I have had all these conversations with my—I have boy-girl twins, right? So Right, right. Different genders as well, and so it's—it's—it's it's, it's really hard to know. Am I slut shaming um, the girl with the smaller body for wearing the yes. thong?
0: Yes. Um But Lizzo. I'm can calling do it, her like, an Amber. I'm I'm yes. saying yeah. I'm saying somehow that she's not right. And then you know, it's funny. Then we'll watch something like the Grammys, or you know, and, and by the way, most and of everyone's asses. Yeah, yeah, everyone's most of those performances, I can't show my kids because they're so inappropriate. So it's like they come out with WAP. Well, I can't have either of my children watch that. But am I not celebrating Megan the Stallion and Cardi's like owning their sexuality? You know, yeah. It's but I, that's I also that but that's also about um, taste. Is right? Is that a male about... gaze though? Is well, are they doing that to celebrate women or are they? I want to. I want you to tap that little thing right in the back of my throat like is that like is that what we want or is that like sound good to a guy (laughs) like not everyone is conscious
1: as to why they're doing things and saying things Mm -hmm. someone may maintain no this i'm doing this for me and because this is my voice and my perspective they may not know that they have a very deep unconscious need for approval from men I don't know. Do you know for what I mean? Sure. Never, we are never going to know the answer to that question. But Amanda, they you are married know. to
0: someone in the music industry. Has he ever been like, you know what I should do? I'm going to um, like, I'm going to wear less tonight for this performance or I'm going to, you know, like, has he ever no, felt but like I, but he has to sexualize himself?
1: Well, there was definitely a period of time in his career where I was like, yo, you need to wear fucking underpants on stage because I can see your- You piece. mean because he
0: didn't wear underpants?
1: Cause he didn't and I was okay. like I can see like I can see too much when you're on stage mm-hmm. and he was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I just didn't want to wear him and I was like, no 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 this is not okay I'm sorry
0: you know and right. so he it was like
1: really and I was like, yes yes put something please put something
0: between right but you're asking you him to the- cover up right like just even yeah. like the outline of penis or whatever you're seeing in that moment yes versus yes' a woman totally. like but when I was looking through, it was Rita Ora, who was like, as a pop star, the less we wear, you know, is like sort of the more popular we are. And by the way, and and, and I may be talking out of my face right now because I only saw this like, <laughs> I saw this like, you know, like sold to me on something and I didn't click, but I've seen like a little bit sort of in the periphery. Lord, right? Who's an incredible talent. Did she put out an image where it's just basically like an upskirt shot? Okay. I want to talk about this. I want to talk
1: about this with you because I had to say that my my initial response was, oh my God, Lord is putting out music. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. One of the most phenomenal young talents. Who when remember when she first came out and she didn't have her eyebrows done and her hair was oh, just yeah, like of course. wild? And and then she started like hanging out with Taylor Swift, who I also think is wonderful, but sort of dressing in like Versace and Gucci. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh my God, what's happened to Lord You know, she's gone like fashion. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking, I wonder how this is going to affect her music that she's mm-hmm. so kind of shifted, right? Well, who knows? Maybe it'll still be great. Disappeared for a long time. Heard Lord was putting out music. The first image I see. Is a shot from the ground up and a pair of yellow bikini bottoms and legs, you know, like mm-hmm. she's jumping. Mm-hmm. And I was like, What? Right. Why? Why? What is it about this photo that is what Lord chose as the first image that represents her music? Now, I have to say, initially, I was fast to judge. And then I had to stop myself and say, Why am I judging? Maybe Lord. I need to listen to the music. Maybe Lord is at a stage of her life where it is important for her to express herself visually in this way. Why mm-hmm. don't I be open and hear what her music is about? And maybe I'll have more insight into why she picked this image. Did you? I have not had a chance to yet. Okay. Uh huh. But have you? But again, like, what do you think? No,
0: uh, li- this is what I'm saying. This is why I said, maybe I'm coming out my face. I don't even know what I'm talking about because I've just seen it, you know? And, but I'm like, my snap judgment, which is not cool, was sort of like, oh my God, I thought she was like so much like above this. Right. And that's wrong of me because I think that like, there's something that we should remember. And, you know, I think about this too, as a mother of a daughter, like I want to empower my daughter with her sexuality to understand that that's a part of herself that she owns that does not have to be put upon. That is not for anyone else. And if she wants to express it, then you know she should but you know but lord
1: is expressing it and that's the thing is like i want my daughter to express her sexuality and to feel confident and take ownership over it unless it involves mm-hmm. displaying it for other people and that's the mm-hmm. unless that i need to look at because that is my judgment and me restricting and controlling her sexual expression if that involves um, you know, whatever it is, in Lord's case, wearing the yellow bikini bottoms in the upshot, so be it. If that's part of her personal ownership, that may be different to mine or my idea. And that's fine. Totally. Because there has to be room for all different expressions. But I know what you t- you're talking about with the kind of, especially with your daughter, you're like, oh, no, I don't want you to have to feel like you have to do that. But what if she wants to do that?
0: Exactly. This is my point. This is my point. You know, I want to get into motherhood a little bit with you. Obviously, you became a mom first at 19. And then again, when you had your twins, I'm sure the whole kind of nature-nurture conversation is interesting to you because obviously, like, people say, well, I wasn't the same person when, you know, obviously you had you said 14 and 28. So 14 years in between, you know, and I'm sure you grew a lot plus you were with a different partner. Like what is the through line for you as far as like, what has been the best part of motherhood for you? And what do you find the most challenging?
1: They're all different with all different kids. Mm -hmm. And well, there's many best parts and there's many extremely challenging parts. (laughs) And I think Ultimately, it comes the through line is me as their mother, right? The through line is me as their mother. And the through line is the things that I appreciate in each one of them are dependent on how well I appreciate myself and Mm -hmm. my life. And the things that I find challenging are dependent on you know, how challenged I am and how resilient I am and how, what place I'm in, because all of those things differ depending on how I'm doing and what stage of life I'm at is the truth. You know, for me to be able to parent and see their beautiful things and, you know, handle and learn to deal with, you know, accommodate for the challenges, it's all down to my perspective. You know, like I, it's how, how I do that is 100% dependent on, 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 how I am in the world. And that's why I always feel like for mothers, it's kind of a hard thing for us to do. But if I do not take care of myself and my spiritual health, physical health, emotional health, as a priority, if I do not put the the mask on my face first, I'm doing my kids a disservice. So I really do focus on my own, you know, spiritual, emotional, physical maintenance, because if that gets dropped, then I can't appreciate them, and i'm just view i view the difficult things about them as like you know horrendous as opposed to just like okay, this is difficult
0: manageable right do you think that for yourself having so much you know and i, I say success because I know success looks different to everybody, but having a sensible success, do you still feel a need to accomplish things to prove value to yourself or others?
1: Do I feel the need to prove anything to myself or to other people at this point in my career? Well, it's less about proving it to other people. Something that I realized is that I continuously skip over my achievements and I work very, very, very hard in order to actualize the things, whatever they are, book, TV show, like whatever it is, you know, all my various things. And then when the thing comes out in the world, I don't let myself sit in the appreciation and the acknowledgement of all that I did in order for that thing to be alive in the world. I just go, great. Okay, let's, let's move on. What's next? And it's something that I'm really focusing on because I think I'm not allowing myself the feeling of accomplishment and achievement and seeing my hard work come to fruition. And I wonder why I don't allow myself that. And so it's really at this point less about what other people think of me and more about, do I think enough of myself? Am I valuing myself enough? Do I appreciate what I'm making. Um, And why am I making stuff? You know, am I making it for everybody else? Yes, I want to create value in the world. I want people, I want to be able to give people something that maybe I can share with them that would be, you know, additive in some way. But I'm also missing the opportunity to build my own self-esteem by acknowledging, you know, the things that I I create. And so I'm, I'm very focused on looking at that part right now. And what brings, what brings value to me and what is enriching for me and what is adding value for me.
0: Right. That's so important. And I always talk to people about, do you take time to celebrate the wins or are you always focused on, you know, kind of placing happiness or placing your satisfaction around the next bend? Because I think we all know, like you never get there. So if we don't acknowledge things or all the milestones or all, all the, all the steps that felt sort of impossible before, you know, once you achieve them, it's so easy to kind of dismiss and to move on to the next thing without really giving yourself any credit. And I think it is such a, you know, it's such a brutal process by which you never really give yourself that kind of attaboy that we all need to feel the sense of validation inside. Amanda, knowing what you know today, do you have a sense of what your having it all would look like for you?
1: I know this is the name of your podcast, but it's also called Mm -hmm. Having It All and Other Lies. So Mm -hmm. I'm gonna speak to the lies piece of it, which is that I really don't even, I will not adopt having it all as a phrase that I will ever use Mm -hmm. because it is a lie, as you know. And so, um, that's not even a phrase that is something I would adapt for myself. I just feel like that is not, that's not for me. For me, you know, what is, I think what you're saying is, you know, what would your life look like? Uh, what, you know, what do you want your life to look like? Yeah. What is peace? Yeah. So I guess ultimately to really feel that I am showing up for my family and for myself in the best way with with as much as I can bring. I don't ever want to feel like there's something I could have done or learned that I just didn't fucking do it because I just, it was too hard. You know, you hit those points where you're like, this is too hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, no, this, this is like, this is too hard. I cannot do this. And I, I, I've hit many of those places like many many times, and I'm somewhat in one again right now where I actually don't feel like I have a lot to say. Which is, well, today I was like, I cannot cancel on you again, but I really don't feel like I have a lot to say, and I don't even really want to speak right now. That's the truth because I'm in a very kind of introspective process. I'm I'm processing a lot of stuff right now, and kind of. Where I come out on the other side of this, I I'm, i don't even know. Like I'm kind of curious to know where I land. But I almost kind of don't wanna put words to things right now because I'm not quite sure of so many things inside myself. I'm in a big transition around how I think and feel about many, many things. And so, you know, look, what does it look like? I guess knowing that I fully brought myself to every situation to the best of my ability and that I don't have regrets. You know, I want to feel like I am bringing my best self my messy self, all of myself with everything that I know to each situation. And as long as I know I'm trying, it's not even about arriving. (laughs) It's like, as long as I know I am willing and I'm showing up with that, then I feel good about myself. Even it's going to be imperfect. It's going to be messy. I'm going to fall short all over the place. But at least I know I'm bringing what I have to the table. And
0: that to me is a space for to feel peaceful. Right. Where can people keep up with the conversation and your new community and follow you what's the best avenue for that the best avenue is probably
1: on instagram at amandadecadene i'm on social that's my handle everywhere and that's the best place and that's where we'll be launching the community people can sign up for it on amandadecadene.com and then the conversation podcast is launching the next series in three weeks so i've already been interviewing people for that
0: all right. Well, we will we will follow along. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you made the time today, and thank I, you so. much. I very much enjoyed what you had to say, even if it thank was, you. you know, something that you're working through right now. I appreciated you, you sharing it. You. Thank you, Sarah. Having It All and Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Vigas. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.